Thank you, Nate. That good reminder that God is always faithful and His faithfulness is great indeed. It's been a great morning of worship already. I always appreciate how intentional Richard is in, in planning these services. We've proclaimed the greatness of our God, and now we're going to hear from one of the great texts in our Bibles from Isaiah chapter 40 as we continue to just fly through this magnificent book of Isaiah over three weeks in October. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful and important book. Like I mentioned last week, all of the gospel writers in the New Testament refer to the prophet Isaiah. You know, the, the Apostle Paul references Isaiah 27 of his 37 prophetic references. Uh, it's such a powerful book that my wife and I named our third child Isaiah. I didn't even mention that last week. It's important. I took a, a seminary class on the exegesis of Isaiah that was not so much informative as it was just purely formative, you know? Really changed my life in a lot of ways. It's such a powerful, powerful book of the Bible. I hope you've been able to follow along with us in our daily Bible readings. If you are, you may be a little bummed at this point because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah uh, pronounce a lot of judgment. They pronounce a lot of uh, warnings to, the, to God's people. This morning's reading, we jump into chapter 40, and it marks a dramatic turning point in the book of Isaiah. So if you've hung in there, stay, stay with us, because chapter 40 gets, gets really good. It marks this, this massive shift in the way the prophet is, is speaking. By this point in Israel's history, remember, God's people have refused to believe God's promises for them. By this point, they've, they've stopped believing that God could really take care of them and redeem them out of their struggles. Instead, now they've, they've turned aside to the false promises of the world around them. They've chosen to look for their comfort and for their security in the same places that the pagan nations around them look to false gods and false promises that go along with them. They, they were seeing these empires grow up around them, Assyria, Babylon, all these mighty nations. And so they began to think, well, they must be doing something right. So we're going to do what they do and not what God told us to do. And it's these people who descended from Abraham, whose, whose great-grandparents lived under King David in the holy city of Jerusalem where the mighty temple that Solomon built remained who were now turning to pagan gods and goddesses to save them instead of the Holy One of Israel. So we read last week in chapter 6 how Isaiah received his call, how he was, had the, the, the seraphim who flew to him with the coal from the altar and touched his lips and atoned for his sin. And how at the, the, the uh, verse 8, the end of our passage for last week, he raised his hand and said, Lord, here am I, send me. But that's as far as we read last week. If we had kept, kept reading, we would have seen that the word that the Lord told Isaiah to speak was not a fun, sunshiny message to give to God's people. He would spend the, the next several decades of his life pronouncing warnings of God's judgment to the Israelites. He would tell them how the Lord was going to discipline them so harshly that only a, a small remnant would be left when the Lord was finished with them. Isaiah, Isaiah said it would be like a stump left in a forest that had been completely burned over. It was not a particularly light or easy 
task that the prophet had signed up for, but it was the truth, right? He was explaining the reality of God to the people of God. He was warning the rebellious people of God about the reality of sin and its, its very real circumstances that go along with it. And so he was calling them to repentance. And the key verse in this whole first section, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, is in chapter 30, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, thus said, usually it says, thus says the Lord God, but this is past tense. The Lord said, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. God is a good and loving Father, right? He actually desires for His people to dwell securely with Him, to be saved by the only one who is capable of pulling them out of the the mire of sin. So He gave them every opportunity to return to Him, to repent, to trust, and then to rest in His strong arms that are capable of saving them. But of course, they were unwilling. Because of their hard-heartedness, they refused to repent. And God did what he said he would do. Imagine that. God seems to always do what he says he's going to do. Great is his faithfulness. He sent them into exile in order to give them a life-giving lesson. Just like a parent would to a child. The people of God were carried off as slaves, as property, to serve a pagan people in a pagan land. Now the the book of Isaiah takes a sharp turn in chapter 40. Instead of pronouncing judgment on an apostate people like he had been doing for the last 39 chapters, the prophet now carries God's word of comfort to a people who are in exile. Instead of addressing a a bunch of rebels that had, had turned aside from God's good promises and rejected the Holy One of Israel, now he speaks to a defeated people who never dreamed that this could happen to them. God's special people. And instead of warning his children now, God is consoling his precious children, reminding them that the stories are still true, that his promises are always kept, and that his love for them remains steadfast. Yes, this is addressed to the captives here in chapter 40 through 55, but it's also a highly relevant message for Isaiah's contemporaries in the 8th century BC, just as it is a highly relevant message for us today in 2017 in Nashville, Tennessee. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 40, and let's stand if you're able to this morning as we hear the Lord of the, the word of the Lord read together. Starting in verse 1, chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. What a beautiful promise this is. For a a people who are in despair, this is a beautiful promise to hold on to. You know, I I know there's many of you here today who need to hear these words resonate in your soul, that sweet heavenly comfort is available to you today. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Though you may be in exile, God still calls you my child. Do you see that in verse 1? He still refers to the broken Israelites as my people. He still refers to himself as your God. He is for you still. He has commissioned a voice in the midst of whatever desert you may find yourself in to call out to you, hey, every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. All the rough places are going to be made level. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. You're going to see it along with everybody. That's a promise. This is God's vision here of creation as it should be. In harmony with with all creation and the creator. All together as one. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech referenced this section of Isaiah 40 in order to give his ideal vision of what a society that was just would look like. He said that no satisfaction would, would be found in America until we saw the glory of the Lord revealed through racial reconciliation. So we hear this text sung every Christmas. You, you may hear the, the Handel's Messiah in your head when we envision John the Baptist calling out to the people of Israel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preparing the way for the Lamb of God who came to reveal God's glory to us all fully. So here's the question then, how can we really trust this promise? How are we supposed today to believe this? How can we understand that this is going to happen in our lives as a reality? Well, We often stop reading at verse 5. But the context of this whole chapter shows us that God himself is the guarantee of this promise. We can trust his promises because of his nature, because of his character, because of his exclusive power that, that all show us perfectly that he is the one who can actually carry out this vision and make it a reality in our lives today. Look at these rhetorical questions that the prophet starts asking in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand or or marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the, the hills in a balance? These are all tiny, finite measurements, and the Lord applies them to creation, to the universe, to the cosmos. You know what a span is? It says he measured off the heavens with a span. It's the Hebrew word zaret, and it means the distance from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky 
finger. That's a span, a hand. It says that God has measured off the universe with the span of His hand. Our God is indeed a big God. The Psalms tell us that He placed the stars, which we know are the biggest heavenly bodies out there. He placed the stars in the sky with His fingers because He is so mighty and great. Our God is bigger than any problem that you may be facing today. Our God is bigger than the Assyrian army was in Isaiah's day. He was bigger than the Babylonian army that came in the 6th century. And he's bigger than cancer today. He's bigger than a struggling marriage. He's bigger than your loneliness or anxiety or depression or whatever it is that you may be going through today. All your fears and worries, we can trust that God is bigger. And therefore, we can trust him to keep his promise, to show us his glory. And not only is our God big, he's also wise. Keep reading. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one is the answer, obviously, because God knows what he's doing. We can trust him. One commentary I read said that God's wisdom is unbounded, unsurpassed, and underived. It did not come from anywhere except in his inherent wisdom in and of himself. My former pastor used to counsel people often, hey, God knows what time it is and where you are. God knows what time it is and where you are. Relax. God knows what time it is and where you are you are. We can rest in his infinite knowledge that he is going to take care of us. We we can trust that he knows better than we do, that he sees in whole the big picture while we only see in part a very limited, finite view. And he's bigger and wiser than any superpower nation that the world could produce. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. You know, here's Israel just cowering in fear because of the the big bad Assyrian empire or the the, the big bad Babylonians that are going to come in and and take over. God says, really? These guys? They're like a drop from a bucket. I count them as nothing. No, actually, I count them as less than nothing. He's not impressed by any government of this planet. He's not impressed by all their collective strength or their wisdom. Because he is infinitely greater and wiser than all the power or wisdom of earth. God is incomparable as well. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or or, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. 
you know, the, the Old Testament is just relentless on exposing the fallacy of idolatry. It's such a foolish way to live. It's so ineffective for actual power and actual might. Over and over again, though, the people of Israel attempt to make for themselves some sort of image with which they could put their trust in. Some kind of of, of physical, tangible object with which they can give their their minds attentions to and their hearts affections to because they, they so desperately want to hold on to something like a golden calf that they can see. Forget all the smoke and thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. We want an, an idol. But to, to give our faith, to give our, our worship to something that is made by man is an, an exercise in futility. We know that, that that road only leads to heartbreak and despair. Verse 21, let's keep going. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth. This is not some new God, is it? It's it's the same God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God that they worshipped here in 1955 when this sanctuary was established. It's the same God who's gone before us our whole lives and will be existing forever. It's the God of Abraham, Moses, and David. These people should know This Yahweh Elohim God. Verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Once again, the, the rulers of the earth are, are reduced to nothing but like landscaping clippings that you just kind of blow off and sweep off as refuse. All the might of earth is nothing compared to our God. The only possible rivals then to God's greatness must be the heavenly bodies, the great planets, the moon, the stars, our sun. There is vast. As, as, as anything, there are billions and billions of them. Scientists continue to tell us that we don't even know how many universes there may be, much less how many stars or planets or heavenly bodies. So the Lord addresses these beings in verse 25. <coughs> Excuse me. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, billions and billions, by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. It was the almighty God who created all these unbelievably vast and massive beings. It was God who who put them in place with his fingertips. And now they all move in in complete dependency on him and his sovereign will to to call them out. They respond together collectively to his command and his authority. That brings us to the amazing conclusion of this chapter. Israel's whiny complaint is, is finally exposed here in verse 27. The Lord brings to light what they've been saying about him. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? You know, the exiled people of Israel had refused to believe that God still cared for them. They refused to believe that that God was capable of of seeing their pain, of of bringing justice to their cause. They, They thought, my right has been disregarded. God doesn't see my path. I've been treated so unfairly. They rejected the reality that somehow what they were going through could possibly be for their good and ultimately for God's glory. They thought that God had treated them unfairly or that somehow he lacked the ability to know what they were going through, to hear their cries, that they were somehow hidden from him. God asked, why? Why do you say this? How could you possibly believe that I can't see you after all that I've just laid out for you? The mighty creator God of the cosmos can't see you? Doesn't know what time it is or where you are? Really? But God graciously answers their complaint anyway. Starting in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Yes, the Lord is the all-powerful creator God. He, He never suffers setbacks, but he helps those who do. You see, the the point of all his exclusive power and and great wisdom is is to help those who lack it. It says here that the the point of this whole passage is brought here together to talk about how God helps those who are in need. Remember a couple weeks ago when Paul prayed three times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh, whatever that may be, that the Lord answered him. He said to me in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my awesome power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The the reality is, even with our, our great resources and training and abilities that we've been blessed with, all of our human wisdom and might and, and, and resources are, are, are like dust compared to the Almighty God. That's the truth that we need to see this morning, that, that not one of us is capable of handling our sin problem on our own. As Richard prayed earlier, we're in need of a Savior to save us. No one in here is able to successfully navigate this life on our own. None of us can do this life apart from the one who gave it to us in the first place, right? None of us are able to successfully see our path apart from the one who has led us on that path thus far and who will continue to lead us. The one in whom all things live and breathe and move and hold together and have their being. The prophet shows us that this sovereign power of God is not hoarded by God and kept for himself. 
but that God's awesome power is constantly, creatively focused on those who put their trust in him, on those who love him, on those who find him to be more beautiful than anything else in this world. Look at the last two verses. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I read a a powerful quote from Pastor Tim Keller in New York City, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church this week. He said, religious people find God useful, but growing Christians find God beautiful. Religious people find God useful, but growing Christians find God beautiful. The Israelites had ceased to find God beautiful. They had turned their gaze away from the beautiful God who gave them life and instead focused on themselves. In verse 27, their complaint is is talking about God, but not to him, because they were looking inward, not upward. They said, my right is disregarded by God. They were were looking in, not up. I've referenced before how St. Augustine said that the, the, the primary problem of the human condition is that we're curved in on ourselves, that we're so inward focused that we can't unbend to God's beauty and to God's will for our lives because our nature is to bend in on ourselves. If only we would lift up our eyes to the heavens like the Lord commands us in chapter 40 here and see the sovereign power of a God who is infinitely more powerful, infinitely more wise, infinitely more beautiful than anything else this world has to offer. Then we would feel his perfect power bearing us up in our weaknesses as if we were effortlessly soaring like an eagle. That he would give us the strength to endure, to even run through whatever it is that we may be going through today. We're reminded here that even though you may feel like you're in exile now, there is a glorious promise on the horizon. There's a promise that we can trust that one day every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought low and all the rough places will be made smooth and plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed as he in his awesome power gathers his children to himself in an awesome new way through Jesus Christ, his own son whom he has given as a propitiation for our sin. We, when we wait on him, trusting in in his promises that he will do what he says he will do, then we can surrender to his good ways. We can unbend on ourselves, knowing that he is infinitely wise, that he knows better than we do, that our beautiful God is always right on time, that he always knows what time it is and where we are. It's, It's not easy, is it, to wait on God? I'm not a patient person. None of us are by nature. My wife is much more patient than I am, just drive through Nashville traffic with us sometime. But waiting on God, patiently trusting in his promises, 
is the only way to do this Christian life. It's the only way to live this way that God has given to us by patiently trusting in his awesome power, in his awesome wisdom to keep his promise, to do what he says he will do, to bear us up on the wings of eagles through the midst of our trials. There's a wonderful Reformation era hymn by a Lutheran named Samuel Rodegast that's been translated into English now called, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. I heard this hymn referenced by a singer named Sandra McCracken. She's just incredible. I've had this album on repeat in my house uh, called Steadfast Live. It's a great record. You should go listen to it. But this hymn, I, I went and, and looked it up, and it's so beautiful. I just want to close with these words today. It says, Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He is my friend and father. He suffers not to do me harm, though many storms may gather. Now I may know both joy and woe. Someday I shall see clearly that he hath loved me dearly. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Let's pray. Lord God, in our human weakness, it's so easy for us to panic. It's so easy for us to despair and lose hope. God, grant us faith. I'm reminded, God, that when a, a Catholic bishop asked Mother Teresa to pray for him, that, that he would have clarity on the hard road ahead of him, Mother Teresa answered him that she's never had clarity. That instead, she would pray that his faith would increase. God, I pray that you would increase our faith today. God, we know that we're not going to see clearly why we go through the things we go through in this life. Why you have us where we have us. But we trust that you know because you see in whole while we only see in part. Grant us faith. Grant us radical trust so that we may obey your wills for our lives. God, forgive us 
for despair. Forgive us for turning to other things to give us comfort, to give us security. God, we confess that that we know they always let us down. May we restore our hope in you, the high and holy God of creation, the one who put the stars in place with your fingertips, the one who always knows more than all of us together and who sees where this is all headed. Grant us faith. We love you. We pray this all in your high and your holy name, the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For our invitation time this morning, we're going to do something a little different. Mark's going to come and play quietly on the guitar, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. And on Wednesday night, we, we had a prayer time for, for our nation, for, for those around the world. We always have a prayer time on Wednesday nights at Simple Worship, but we are reminded that uh, in the time of, of grief and tragedy, that we as Christians, as God's people, are called to pray. We're commanded to lift up our prayers to the Lord. Many politicians took a lot of heat on Twitter for saying they were praying for Las Vegas. People were saying, you don't need to pray, you need to act. Well, we believe that, that prayer is action. And we believe that prayer is, is a strong action. So we're going to invite you to, to pray this morning. To pray for yourself, whatever you're going through. To pray for, for others who you know are going through hard times. To intercede for them in times of, of pain and exile. To pray for our nation, to lift up, as, as Phil did earlier in our deacon's prayer, the, the leaders of, of our country, the leaders of uh, each uh, state, the, the governor of Nevada, the, the mayor of Las Vegas, the sheriff there in Las Vegas, to pray for all those who are, the Bible tells us we're supposed to do this. First Timothy 2 says that, that prayers are, are to be made for those who are in high places of authority. To pray for our church as we navigate our future here on this corner in Nashville, Whatever it may be, uh, we'd invite you to come, to actually come kneel here at the altar. You can stand here if you're able. Whatever it is that you want to do, to, I would invite our deacons especially to come forward during this time and just kneel. Again, we're called to pray as God's people. This is a time of invitation as well. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ ever for the first time as Lord and Savior. I'd love to talk with you about that. I'm going to be up here ready to talk with you and receive you. Maybe it's time for you to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member. I'd love to talk with you about that this morning as well. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, I encourage you to to lift up prayers to the Lord. Someone in our church reminded us, one of our new members, that we're called to repent as God's people. That's what the prophets are all about, returning to the Lord. Maybe you just need to offer up a prayer of repentance, both individually and collectively, as a church, as a state, as a nation, as, as human beings on this planet. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, I invite you to come and pray here or pray in your seats, whatever you feel led to do during this time.